Chapter Six, Part B of Roderick Hudson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Miss Light carried out this undertaking with unfaltering ardor. The cavaliere was summoned, and he stood to receive her commands, hat in hand, with his eyes cast down, as if she had been a princess addressing her major domo. She, however, laid her hand with friendly grace upon his buttonhole, and called him a dear, good old cavaliere for being always so willing. Her spirits had risen with the occasion, and she talked irresistible nonsense. "'Bring the best they have,' she said, "'no matter if it ruins us. And if the best is very bad, it will be all the more amusing. I shall enjoy seeing Mr. Mallet try to swallow it for propriety's sake. Mr. Hudson will say out like a man that it's horrible stuff, and that he'll be choked first. Be sure you bring a dish of macaroni. The prince must have the diet of the Neapolitan nobility.' but I leave all that to you, my poor dear Cavaliere. You know what's good. Only be sure, above all, you bring a guitar. Mr. Mallet will play us a tune, I'll dance with Mr. Hudson, and Mamma will pair off with the prince, of whom she is so fond." And as she concluded her recommendation, she patted her bland old servitor caressingly on the shoulder. He looked askance at Roland, his little black eyes glittered. It seemed to say, didn't I tell you she was a good girl? The Cavaliere returned with zealous speed, accompanied by one of the servants of the inn, laden with a basket containing the materials of a rustic luncheon. The porter of the villa was easily induced to furnish a table and half a dozen chairs, and the repast, when set forth, was pronounced a perfect success. Not so good as to fail of the proper picturesqueness, nor yet so bad as to defeat the proper function of repasts. Christina continued to display the most charming animation, and compelled Roland to reflect privately that, think what one might of her, the harmonious gaiety of a beautiful girl was the most beautiful sight in nature. Her good humour was contagious. Roderick, who an hour before had been descanting on madness and suicide, commingled his laughter with hers in ardent devotion. Prince Casamassima stroked his young moustache, and found a fine, cool smile for everything. His neighbour, Mrs. Light, who had Roland on the other side, made the friendliest confidences to each of the young men, and the Cavaliere contributed to the general hilarity by the solemnity of his attention to his plate. As for Roland, the spirit of kindly mirth prompted him to propose the health of this useful old gentleman as the effective author of their pleasure. A moment later he wished he had held his tongue, for although the toast was drunk with demonstrative good will, the Cavaliere received it with various small signs of eager self-effacement, which suggested to Roland that his diminished gentility but half relished honours which had a flavour of patronage. To perform punctiliously his mysterious duties toward the two ladies, and to elude or to baffle observation on his own merits, this seemed to be the Cavaliere's modest programme. Roland perceived that Mrs. Light, who was not always remarkable for tact, seemed to have divined his humour on this point. She touched her glass to her lips, but offered him no compliment, and immediately gave another direction to the conversation. He had brought no guitar, so that when the feast was over there was nothing to hold the little group together. Christina wandered away with Roderick to another part of the terrace. The prince, whose smile had vanished, sat gnawing the head of his cane near Mrs. Light, and Roland strolled apart with the Cavaliere, 
to whom he wished to address a friendly word in compensation for the discomfort he had inflicted on his modesty. The Cavaliere was a mine of information upon all Roman places and people. He told Roland a number of curious anecdotes about the old Villa Mondragone. If history could always be taught in this fashion, thought Roland, it's the ideal, strolling up and down on the very spot commemorated, hearing sympathetic anecdotes from deeply indigenous lips. At last, as they passed, Roland observed the mournful physiognomy of Prince Casamassima, and glancing toward the other end of the terrace, saw that Roderick and Christina had disappeared from view. The young man was sitting upright, in an attitude, apparently habitual, of ceremonious rigidity, but his lower jaw had fallen, and was propped up with his cane, and his dull dark eye was fixed upon the angle of the villa, which had just eclipsed Miss Light and her companion. His features were grotesque, and his expression vacuous, but there was a lurking delicacy in his face, which seemed to tell you that nature had been making casamassimas for a great many centuries, and though she adapted her mould to circumstances, had learned to mix her material to an extraordinary fineness, and to perform the whole operation with extreme smoothness. The prince was stupid, Roland suspected, but he imagined he was amiable, and he saw that at any rate he had the great quality of regarding himself in a thoroughly serious light. Roland touched his companion's arm, and pointed to the melancholy nobleman. "'Why in the world does he not go after her, and insist on being noticed?' he asked. "'Oh, he's very proud,' said the Cavaliere. "'That's all very well, but a gentleman who cultivates a passion for that young lady must be prepared to make sacrifices.' "'He thinks he has already made a great many. He comes of a very great family, a race of princes, who for six hundred years have married none but the daughters of princes. But he is seriously in love, and he would marry her to-morrow. And she will not have him? Ah, she is very proud, too. The Cavaliere was silent a moment, as if he were measuring the propriety of frankness. He seemed to have formed a high opinion of Roland's discretion, for he presently continued, it would be a great match, for she brings him neither a name nor a fortune, nothing but her beauty. But the signorina will receive no favours, I know her well. She would rather have her beauty blasted than seem to care about the marriage, and if she ever accepts the prince, it will only be after he has implored her on his knees. But she does care about it, said Roland, and to bring him to his knees she is working upon his jealousy by pretending to be interested in my friend Hudson. If you said more, you would say that, eh? The Cavaliere's shrewdness exchanged a glance with Roland's. By no means. Miss Light is a singular girl. She has many romantic ideas. She would be quite capable of interesting herself seriously in an interesting young man like your friend, and doing her utmost to discourage a splendid suitor like the Prince. She would act sincerely, and she would go very far. But it would be unfortunate for the young man, he added, after a pause, for at the last she would retreat. A singular girl, indeed. She would accept the more brilliant parti. I can answer for it. And what would be her motive? She would be forced. There would be circumstances. I can't tell you more. But this implies that the rejected suitor would also come back. He might grow tired of waiting. Oh, this one is good. Look at him now. Roland looked, and saw that the prince had left his place by Mrs. Light, 
and was marching restlessly to and fro between the villa and the parapet of the terrace. Every now and then he looked at his watch. "'In this country, you know,' said the Cavaliere, "'a young lady never goes walking alone with a handsome young man. It seems to him very strange.' "'It must seem to him monstrous, and if he overlooks it he must be very much in love.' "'Oh, he will overlook it. He is far gone.' Who is this exemplary lover, then? What is he? A Neapolitan, one of the oldest houses in Italy. He is a prince in your English sense of the word, for he has a princely fortune. He is very young. He is only just of age. He saw the signorina last winter in Naples. He fell in love with her from the first, but his family interfered, and an old uncle, an ecclesiastical, Monsignor B., hurried up to Naples, seized him, and locked him up. Meantime he has passed his majority, and he can dispose of himself. His relations are moving heaven and earth to prevent his marrying Miss Light, and they have sent us word that he forfeits his property if he takes his wife out of a certain line. I have investigated the question minutely, and I find this is but a fiction to frighten us. He is perfectly free, but the estates are such that it is no wonder they wish to keep them in their own hands. For Italy, it is an extraordinary case of unencumbered property. The prince has been an orphan from his third year. He has therefore had a long minority, and made no inroads upon his fortune. Besides, he is very prudent and orderly. I am only afraid that some day he will pull the purse-strings too tight. All these years his affairs have been in the hands of Monsignor B., who has managed them to perfection paid off mortgages, planted forests, opened up mines. It is now a magnificent fortune, such a fortune as with his name would justify the young man in pretending to any alliance whatsoever. And he lays it all at the feet of that young girl who is wandering in yonder boschetto with a penniless artist. He certainly is a phoenix of princes. The signora must be in a state of bliss." The Cavaliere looked imperturbably grave. The Signora has a high esteem for his character. His character, by the way, rejoined Roland with a smile. What sort of a character is it? Eh, Prince Casamassima is a veritable prince. He is a very good young man. He is not brilliant nor witty, but he'll not let himself be made a fool of. He's very grave and very devout, though he does propose to marry a Protestant. He will handle that point after marriage. He's, as you see him there, a young man without many ideas, but with a very firm grasp of a single one, the conviction that Prince Casamassima is a very great person, that he greatly honours any young lady by asking for her hand, and that things are going very strangely when the young lady turns her back on him. The poor young man, I'm sure, is profoundly perplexed, but I whisper to him every day, Pazienza, signor principe. So you firmly believe, said Roland in conclusion, that Miss Light will accept him just in time not to lose him? I count upon it. She would make too perfect a princess to miss her destiny. And you hold that nevertheless, in the meanwhile, in listening to, say, my friend Hudson, she will have been acting in good faith? The Cavaliere lifted his shoulders a trifle, and gave an inscrutable smile. Eh! Dear Signore, the Christina is very romantic. So much so, you intimate, that she will eventually retract, in consequence not of a change of sentiment, but of a mysterious outward pressure? 
If everything else fails, there is that resource. But it is mysterious, as you say, and you needn't try to guess it. You will never know. The poor signorina, then, will suffer? Not too much, I hope. And the poor young man, you maintain that there is nothing but disappointment in store for the infatuated youth who loses his heart to her? The Cavaliere hesitated. He had better, he said in a moment, go and pursue his studies in Florence. There are very fine antiques in the Uffizi. Roland presently joined Mrs. Light, to whom her restless protégé had not yet returned. That's right, she said. Sit down here. I have something serious to say to you. I am going to talk to you as a friend. I want your assistance. In fact, I demand it. It's your duty to render it. Look at that unhappy young man. Yes, said Roland. He seems unhappy. He has just come of age. He bears one of the greatest names in Italy, and owns one of the greatest properties, and he is pining away with love for my daughter. So the Cavaliere tells me. The Cavaliere shouldn't gossip, said Mrs. Light dryly. Such information should come from me. The prince is pining, as I say. He's consumed. He's devoured. It's a real Italian passion. I know what that means. And the lady gave a speaking glance, which seemed a coquette for a moment with retrospect. Meanwhile, if you please, my daughter is hiding in the woods with your dear friend Mr. Hudson. I could cry with rage. If things are so bad as that, said Roland, it seems to me that you ought to find nothing easier than to dispatch the Cavaliere to bring the guilty couple back. Never in the world! My hands are tied! Do you know what Christina would do? She would tell the Cavaliere to go about his business, heaven forgive her, and send me word that if she had a mind to, she would walk in the woods till midnight. Fancy the Cavaliere coming back, and delivering such a message as that before the Prince! Think of a girl wantonly making light of such a chance as hers. He would marry her to-morrow at six o'clock in the morning. It is certainly very sad, said Roland. That costs you little to say. If you had left your precious young meddler to vegetate in his native village, you would have saved me a world of distress. Nay, you marched into the jaws of danger, said Roland. You came and disinterred poor Hudson in his own secluded studio. In an evil hour, I wish to heaven you would talk with him. I have done my best. I wish then you would take him away. You have plenty of money. Do me a favor. Take him to travel. Go to the east. Go to Timbuktu. Then, when Christina is Princess Casamassima, Mrs. Light added in a moment, he may come back if he chooses. Does she really care for him? Roland asked abruptly. She thinks she does, possibly. She is a living riddle. She must needs follow out every idea that comes into her head. Fortunately, most of them don't last long, but this one may last long enough to give the prince a chill. If that were to happen, I don't know what I should do. I should be the most miserable of women. It would be too cruel, after all I've suffered to make her what she is, to see the labor of years blighted by a caprice. For I can assure you, sir, Mrs. Light went on, that if my daughter is the greatest beauty in the world, some of the credit is mine. Roland promptly remarked that this was obvious. He saw that the lady's irritated nerves demanded comfort from flattering reminiscence, and he assumed designedly the attitude of a zealous auditor. She began to retail her efforts, her hopes, 
her dreams, her presentiments, her disappointments, in the cause of her daughter's matrimonial fortunes. It was a long story, and while it was being unfolded, the prince continued to pass to and fro, stiffly and solemnly, like a pendulum marking the time allowed for the young lady to come to her senses. Mrs. Light evidently, at an early period, had gathered her maternal hopes into a sacred sheaf, which she said her prayers and burnt incense to, and treated like a sort of fetish. They had been her religion, she had none other, and she performed her devotions bravely and cheerily in the light of day. The poor old fetish had been so caressed and manipulated, so thrust in and out of its niche, so passed from hand to hand, so dressed and undressed, so mumbled and fumbled over, that it had lost by this time much of its early freshness, and seemed a rather battered and disfeatured divinity. But it was still brought forth in moments of trouble to have its tinseled petticoat twisted about, and be set up on its altar. Roland observed that Mrs. Light had a genuine maternal conscience. She considered that she had been performing a sacred duty in bringing up Christina to set her cap for a prince, and when the future looked dark she found consolation in thinking that destiny could never have the heart to deal a blow at so deserving a person. This conscience upside down presented to Roland's fancy a real physical image. He was on the point, half a dozen times, of bursting out laughing. "'I don't know whether you believe in presentiment,' said Mrs. Light, and I don't care. I have had one for the last fifteen years. People have laughed at it, but they haven't laughed me out of it. It has been everything to me. I couldn't have lived without it. One must believe in something. It came to me in a flash, when Christine was five years old. I remember the day and the place as if it were yesterday. She was a very ugly baby. For the first two years I could hardly bear to look at her and I used to spoil my own looks with crying about her. She had an Italian nurse who was very fond of her, and insisted that she would grow up pretty. I couldn't believe her. I used to contradict her, and we were forever squabbling. I was just a little silly in those days, surely I may say it now, and I was very fond of being amused. If my daughter was ugly, it was not that she resembled her mamma. I had no lack of amusement. People accused me, I believe, of neglecting my little girl. If it was so, I've made up for it since. One day I went to drive on the Pinchot in very low spirits. A trusted friend had greatly disappointed me. While I was there he passed me in a carriage, driving with a horrible woman who had made trouble between us. I got out of my carriage to walk about, and at last sat down on a bench. I can show you the spot at this hour. While I sat there, a child came wandering along the path, a little girl of four or five, very fantastically dressed in crimson and orange. She stopped in front of me and stared at me, and I stared at her queer little dress, which was a cheap imitation of the costume of one of these contadine. At last I looked up at her face and said to myself, "'Bless me, what a beautiful child! What a splendid pair of eyes! What a magnificent head of hair! If my poor Christina were only like that!' The child turned away slowly, but looking back with its eyes fixed on me. All of a sudden I gave a cry, pounced on it, pressed it in my arms, and covered it with kisses. It was Christina, my own precious child, so disguised by the ridiculous dress which the nurse had abused herself in making for her, that her own mother had not recognized her. She knew me, but she said afterwards she had not spoken to me, because I looked so angry. 
Of course my face was sad. I rushed with my child to the carriage, drove home post-haste, pulled off her rags, and, as I may say, wrapped her in cotton. I had been blind, I had been insane, she was a creature in ten millions, she was to be a beauty of beauties, a priceless treasure. Every day after that the certainty grew. From that time I lived only for my daughter. I watched her, I caressed her from morning till night, I worshipped her. I went to see doctors about her, I took every sort of advice. I was determined she should be perfection. The things that have been done for that girl, sir, you wouldn't believe them. They would make you smile. Nothing was spared. If I had been told she must have a bath every morning of molten pearls, I would have found means to give it to her. She never raised a finger for herself. She breathed nothing but perfumes. She walked upon velvet. She was never out of my sight, and from that day to this I have never said a sharp word to her. By the time she was ten years old, she was beautiful as an angel, and so noticed wherever we went that I had to make her wear a veil like a woman of twenty. Her hair reached down to her feet, her hands were the hands of a princess. Then I saw that she was as clever as she was beautiful, and that she had only to play her cards. She had masters, professors, every educational advantage. They told me she was a little prodigy. She speaks French, Italian, German, better than most natives. She has a wonderful genius for music, and might make her fortune as a pianist, if it was not made for her otherwise. I travelled all over Europe. Everyone told me she was a marvel. The director of the opera in Paris saw her dance at a child's party at Spa, and offered me an enormous sum if I would give her up to him and let him have her educated for the ballet. I said, No, I thank you, sir. She is meant to be something finer than a princesse de théâtre. I had a passionate belief that she might marry absolutely whom she chose, that she might be a princess out and out. It has never left me till this hour, and I can assure you that it has sustained me in many embarrassments. Financial, some of them, I don't mind confessing it. I have raised money on that girl's face. I've taken her to the Jews and bade her put up her veil, and asked if the mother of that young lady was not safe. She, of course, was too young to understand me. And yet, as a child, you would have said she knew what was in store for her. Before she could read, she had the manners, the tastes, the instincts of a little princess. She would have nothing to do with shabby things or shabby people. If she stained one of her frocks, she was seized with a kind of frenzy and tore it to pieces. At Nice, at Baden, at Brighton, wherever we stayed, she used to be sent for by all the great people to play with their children. She has played at kissing games with people who now stand on the steps of thrones. I have gone so far to think at times that those childish kisses were a sign, a symbol, a portent. You may laugh at me if you like, but haven't such things happened again and again, without half as good a cause, and doesn't history notoriously repeat itself? There was a little Spanish girl at a second-rate English boarding-school thirty years ago. The Empress certainly is a pretty woman. But what is my Christina, pray? I've dreamt of it, sometimes every night for a month. I won't tell you I've been to consult those old women who advertise in the newspapers. You'll call me an old imbecile. Imbecile, if you please. I have refused magnificent offers, because I believed that somehow or other— if wars and revolutions were needed to bring it about, we should have nothing less than that. There might be another coup d'état somewhere, and another brilliant young sovereign looking out for a wife. 
At last, however, Mrs. Light proceeded with incomparable gravity. Since the overturning of the poor King of Naples, and that charming Queen, and the expulsion of all those dear, little, old-fashioned Italian Grand Dukes, and the dreadful radical talk that is going on all over the world, it has come to seem to me that with Christina in such a position I should be really very nervous. Even in such a position she would hold her head very high, and if anything should happen to her, she would make no concessions to the popular fury. The best thing, if one is prudent, seems to be a nobleman of the highest possible rank, short of belonging to a reigning stock. There you see one striding up and down looking at his watch, and counting the minutes till my daughter reappears. Roland listened to all this with a huge compassion for the heroine of the tale. What an education, what a history, what a school of character and of morals! He looked at the prince, and wondered whether he, too, had heard Mrs. Light's story. If he had, he was a brave man. "'I certainly hope you'll keep him,' he said to Mrs. Light. "'You have played a dangerous game with your daughter. It would be a pity not to win. But there is hope for you yet. Here she comes at last.' Christina reappeared as he spoke these words, strolling beside her companion, with the same indifferent tread with which she had departed. Roland imagined that there was a faint pink flush in her cheek, which she had not carried away with her, and there was certainly a light in Roderick's eyes, which he had not seen there for a week. "'Bless my soul, how they are all looking at us!' she cried as they advanced. "'One would think we were prisoners of the Inquisition!' And she paused and glanced from the prince to her mother, and from Roland to the Cavaliere, and then threw back her head and burst into far-ringing laughter. What is it, pray? Have I been very improper? Am I ruined for ever? Dear Prince, you are looking at me as if I had committed the unpardonable sin. I myself, said the Prince, would never have ventured to ask you to walk with me alone in the country for an hour. The more fool you, dear Prince, as the vulgar say. Our walk has been charming. I hope you, on your side, have enjoyed each other's society. My dear daughter, said Mrs. Light, taking the arm of her predestined son-in-law. I shall have something serious to say to you when we reach home. We will go back to the carriage. Something serious? Decidedly, it is the Inquisition. Mr. Hudson, stand firm, and let us agree to make no confessions without conferring previously with each other. They may put us on the rack first. Mr. Mallet, I see also, Christina added, has something serious to say to me. Roland had been looking at her with the shadow of his lately stirred pity in his eyes. Possibly, he said, but it must be for some other time. I am at your service. I see our good humour is gone, and I only wanted to be amiable. It is very discouraging. Cavaliere, you only look as if you had a little of the milk of human kindness left. From your venerable visage, at least, there is no telling what you think. Give me your arm, and take me away." The party took its course back to the carriage, which was waiting at the grounds of the villa, and Roland and Roderick bade their friends farewell. Christina threw herself back in her seat and closed her eyes, a manoeuvre for which Roland imagined the prince was grateful, as it enabled him to look at her without seeming to depart from his attitude of distinguished disapproval. Roland found himself aroused from sleep early the next morning, to see Roderick standing before him, dressed for departure, with
with his bag in his hand. I am off, he said. I am back to work. I have an idea. I must strike while the iron's hot. Farewell. And he departed by the first train. Roland went alone by the next. End of chapter 6, part B